It's a Mailbag Monday. We've got your questions about impact prospects in the National League East. Where should Cuban signees debut in the minors? When is it okay to change allegiances of your team you root for? And how data collection works in the minors? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. And as we do on every Monday episode, this is a mailbag. All of these questions come from listeners of the show. Most of them came from members of our Locked on MLB Prospects Discord. If you want to join the Discord, link is in the show notes on audio in the episode description on YouTube. We'd love to have you. Uh, Tiger Hisamos in the Discord asks, uh, now that most of the big free agents are signed, which National League East prospect has the best chance of making an impact in 2023. So for the most part, you're looking at a Met, right? Uh, the, the Mets are the team that have so many high-level position player prospects who are just about ready. Uh, the Braves, they've either debuted most of their guys or they've traded away the guys who could be impactful who were closer to the big leagues. There's a couple pitchers in here that I think may do it, but your your answer, because everyday position players always have the biggest impact, your answer is probably uh, most likely catcher Francisco Alvarez of the Mets with behind him possibly third baseman Brett Beatty if he you know, spends time in left field, uh, or Mark Vientos if he spends time backing up the corners and DHing in lieu of Alvarez. But Francisco Alvarez is the odds-on favorite. There is a couple pitchers. I'm going to go ahead and separate these because I really think rookie of the year should be separated in pitcher and position player. So I'm going to separate these and say there's a couple pitchers who I think could be impactful prospects at the big league level this year. Um, two guys that I like, but I think that they, they're not going to be, they wouldn't be up long enough to be in the rookie of the year conversation. But guys that I just like, I want to make sure I mention uh, Miami left-hand pitcher Jake Eater. I like a lot of what he does. He had Tommy John in August 2021. So I think they'd slow play it before he got to the bigs this year. But I do expect him to debut some point in time this year. Uh, and probably is going to look pretty decent. And then left-hand pitcher Eric Miller of the Phillies. A fastball, changeup, slider, reliever. I feel like he could be do a lot of good work in the back end of the bullpen for the Phillies. With a history has started enough where you could have him open and spot start and things like that. I think those two guys will be up a little bit. But the two pit, the two pitching prospects that I'm going to be watching the most this year in the National League East. Uh, first one is Washington right-hand pitcher Cade Cavalli. Uh, 2021, uh, 2020 first rounder out of Oklahoma. And big body, 6'4", 226. Really good repertoire. So 20 games in AAA last year. Uh, six and four, three seven one ERA. Got about ninety seven innings pitched. He threw it. He had one hundred and four strikeouts, so nine point six five strikeouts per nine, to thirty nine walks, so about three point six walks per nine, and gave up three home runs. Did get in one game at the big league level. Want to say you faced the Reds, 
and went like four and a third and got lit up. I mean, set like seven runs, ERA of 14 and a half. One start, not really worried about that too much. Still, you know, still had, I think, six strikeouts in the, in the outing. So the strikeout stuff is real. But uh, the arsenal that you have here, so the fastball is probably a 70 grade in a vacuum, right? Uh, 95 to 97, hits 100. And obviously, you know, he's, he's a 6'4", a little bit of a, of a higher slot, and so good approach angle to the plate. It plays down a little bit from that 96, 97, because it doesn't have, um, like, exceptional spin or movement to it. And it's a very straightforward delivery. There's not a lot of deception in there. And so it's easier for a, for a hitter to recognize the fastball and get on it. And so because of that, you saw Cavalli switch to using more of his secondaries last year. He's got a, a 12 to 6 curveball, kind of a hammer curveball, uh, as well as a, a, a slider. I think the curveball is uh, 65 grade, maybe. It's not as good as the fastball. It's not a 70 grade, but it's better than a plus pitch. The slider is a plus pitch to me. Uh, and the curveball is better at swing and miss. The slider's better at getting at throwing strikes in the zone. And then he's got a changeup that he's been working on uh, that can kind of help keep people from sitting on the fastball. The changeup improves a little bit there, and he just can kind of strike a better balance of trying to hit the zone with trying to go after hitters. I think he could be a, a pretty impactful starter at the big league level. And so this might be the year that he does it. Uh, to go along with him, the other guy, and if you've watched this show before, no surprise here, uh, right-hand pitcher Andrew Painter of the Phillies. One of the few guys that we talk about could be an ace, could be a number one pitcher. Uh, 6'7", 215, he was a 2021 first rounder out of high school. And yet, last year, between low A Clearwater, high A Jersey Shore, and double A Reading, 22 games, 6-2 and two record, and especially in the low minors, record doesn't matter. But some people want to hear it, so we go ahead and put it in here. If you have an opinion on whether you want to hear about record for a pitcher in the minors, leave it in the comments, tweet at us. We're on Twitter, uh, at LockedOnFarm. Let us know your preferences on that. But for Andrew Painter, 6-2, ERA in 103 and two-thirds innings. 155 strikeouts, so 13.5 per nine, to 25 walks, 2.2 walks per nine. Five home runs allowed. A couple things he has to work on as far as depth into games. He kind of was averaging a little under five innings per start. I think that was a workload thing. It was just something where he had, after getting drafted in 21, he had literally six innings in the bigs. And so they just, they, they wanted to not overload him. I think getting him right around 100 innings was a good, was a good number there. But when you look at what he does, fastball is... Elite, 95 to 96, touches 101. It's got really good spin to it and a bunch of indertical, uh, induced vertical break, right? Uh, very, very good command. Can put it exactly, can dot it wherever he wants it. Slider, I'd say it's a plus slider and it's got about a foot of horizontal break. Uh, to go along with both of those, he got an above average changeup. The changeup breaks both horizontally and vertically. It's got two-plane break to it. And then to go along with that, you have a curveball that's kind of average. It blends in with the slider. But it gives you a uh, the, 
the, the triangle profile as far as the fastball breaks down, the slider breaks across, and the, ch- and the changeup breaks diagonally. And so you, you get your three points of your triangle there. So he can work effectively both north and south and east and west in there. The control is exceptional. Double uh, A last year. He walked two batters in like 28 innings. Just very like exceptional control. Uh, looked He looked better and better as the year went on. I mean, 28 innings over five starts and double A reading with an ERA of like two and a half with two walks was exceptional while still striking out 11 and a half guys per nine. So yes, he's young. He'll be 20 this year or 20 in the 2023 season. But I think he absolutely could very quickly acclimate to the big leagues and look phenomenal. Uh, Philly has enough pitching talent where they won't necessarily need him. But when they find opportunities, they can get him up and give him opportunities to play. Uh, real quick, while we're on the National League East, Daryl in our Discord asks if we think the Braves will trade for a shortstop. At this point, I don't think they are. Uh, so, Willie Adamas from the Brewers was a popular target. I think if they were going to get him, they would have done it in the Sean Murphy deal where they were sending something, William Contreras, over to the Brewers. Uh, Ahmed Rosario is a popular trade target. I don't think they're going to go out and get him because his defense is not great. Uh, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa of the Yankees has been rumored to be available via trade. I think the Yankees want to keep him as a backup option to some of the prospects, but also he's not a great hitter and he rates in a negative on outs above average. Jorge Mateo is probably the only guy I could see the Braves going for. Uh, Jorge Mateo of the Orioles. Low power, but 99th percentile in speed, led the American League in steals, uh, plus 11 outs above average at short. And so, very good defender, has speed, can fit him into your lineup. Uh, Daryl had asked about Fernando Tatis. I don't think the Braves have the prospect capital to go out and get a guy like a Tatis. At this point in time, the Braves system, all like I said earlier, all of your impact prospects have already debuted or have been traded. You have some promising guys who are in the lower minors, but uh, it's probably a bottom five farm system right now because you've used that prospect capital to win a World Series. So I don't see the Braves having the capital to go out and make any big trades like you would need for a Tatis. Mateo is probably the biggest type of trade that they could pull off right now. In just a minute... I want to get to a question about Cuban signees and where they should debut. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at BetOnline. BetOnline.net is your number one source for sports betting info, stats, news, and analysis. You get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. Pro footballers, we're getting towards the playoffs. Uh, May your fantasy football team have done well in the playoffs over the weekend. Uh, College Bowl season is here. We're in the middle of it. We're going to get to the playoff soon, the college football playoff. Basketball, college and pro, World Cup just finished up, but BetOnline had everything. They even have uh, things like, we just got odds out there for the World Baseball Classic. Team USA is the favorite for the 2023 World Baseball Classic, 5-2 to two odds, followed by the Dominican uh, at 11-4, Japan at 9-2, and Puerto Rico at 8-1. Uh, at the very bottom of that list, uh, China and Great Britain, 100 to 1 odds. The Czech Republic and Nicaragua at 125 to 1. So it's not just the major sports, it's also ancillary tournaments and things like that. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action because Bet Online is where the game starts. 
Okay, so question from Jacob on Twitter. Should prospects from Cuba play in the Dominican Summer League or the Complex League? Uh, and I think the short answer most of the time is no. Jacob touches on some of the factors in his question, but uh, when you look at Cuban prospects who sign as free agents, typically they are older than a lot of international signees. They're 18, 19, 20, sometimes even older than that. Uh, and so it's kind of a step back in competition for them to go to the DSL. Now, I do think Complex League sometimes could work out on a very limited basis. You know, they're there for three games, they're there for five games. You do have all of the advanced data stuff there in spring or at the spring training complexes. So it's useful maybe to get a little bit of that info before you send them out to an affiliate. Uh, because if you think about it, they're older, they're more advanced. They're not, a lot of what they have to do is they have to work on timing because they haven't been in competitive high-level baseball in a while, and they have to get comfortable with pro pitching. Look at a guy like an Oscar Colas. Uh, for the White Sox, he's expected to be the right fielder this year, but he's somebody who he had pitched in Cuba, he had pitched in Japan, and when he debuted in 2022 with the White Sox, he spent, he went straight to high A. He spent 59 games in high A, 312, 369, 475. Then he went to Double A Birmingham for 50 games. 306, 364, 563. Then they sent him for the last week of the season to Triple A Charlotte. So small sample size, but 387, 424, 645. I had a grand total of 23 home runs in that one season and a combined slash line of 314, 371, 524. He was probably a little advanced for high A Winston-Salem, but that was a situation where he had to get his timing back. He had to get familiar with higher level pitching. And I'm a big fan of, you can always start them low and aggressively promote them. Because the goal here is to find their true talent level. And it feels like the White Sox realized that rather quickly that even double A wasn't necessarily his true talent level. He did well enough. He felt good enough that they got him that September call up in AAA at the very end of the year. Uh, if he doesn't break camp as the starting right fielder, it'll be because they keep him in AAA probably just long enough to get past the Super 2 deadline and then they debut him uh, in, in Chicago. But I absolutely think that he is ready to be, at age 23, ready to be the starting right fielder for the White Sox right now. Uh, so for the most part, no, they shouldn't be in the Dominican at all. And they shouldn't be in the complex for anything more than just a few days. Uh, Hanyo in our Discord asked, when is it socially acceptable to switch fandoms? And the, re the reference here was, uh, he switched when the Expos moved. He was a Montreal Expos fan, the Expos moved, and so he switched allegiances. He's now a Mariners fan. And I think that's, one, a perfect example of a time when you should be allowed to pick a new team. If your team moves or relocates, uh, there, I, I have no issues with you saying, you know what, I'm going to pick a new team to root for. Now, there is a question about if they relocate to a new location and they stay in your city. So, for instance, I know people who live in downtown Atlanta who, when the Braves moved and they moved to the current location uh, you know, in East Cobb, they were a little upset that the Braves left the city proper. But they're still Braves fans, and they're still going to be Braves fans, and I don't quite think they should change. But if your team moves... Uh, just up, picks up and leaves your city, 100% uh, 
no question. You can change teams, and it will nobody will have an issue with it. Um, the second one, I think, is if you physically re relocate away from your team, I think you can add a second team to your fandom. So, for instance, my sister, uh, my sister was a Braves fan, it still is, but she moved for a while. She lived in Houston, and for a while, she lived in D.C. So, not only would she always go to see the Braves when they were in town, but she would also go to games for those teams when it was an interesting matchup. And it's just it's kind of natural to root a little bit for the team you're in. Now, it helps, like with Houston's case, it helps her that it was a different division in a different league. Uh, I, I'm a little bit iffier about her rooting for the Nationals when she was in D.C. She didn't really root for them. She just went to their games. But I think Houston, it would have been understandable to say, yes, I live in Houston. They're not in the same league or division as Atlanta. It's fine if this is my second team, but I'm still keeping my loyalty to the Braves. And when these two teams play each other, I pull for the Braves. Made sense to me. I'm fine with that. I think the third situation, and this is one that Hanya references in his question, is the Oakland situation. The Oakland A's, unlike a lot of other teams who are struggling or projected to not do well, have in essence given up. Their owner is a billionaire. They could do not the same thing that the Mets are doing. That's out of the ordinary. But they could legitimately be involved in improving the team and trying to compete. And it feels like they are tearing everything down right now just for the sake of tearing it down because they are trying, they are threatening to relocate unless the city gives them essentially a new stadium pays for the property and the building and gets a new stadium out of this. And I agree that their stadium is bad, but I don't I think in this situation where it's very clear that John Fisher uh, and and the ownership of the team has given up on trying to create a sustainable product uh, and trying to put out a major league quality product, I think it is perfectly okay if you wanted to say, "You know what? If they're going to do this, I'm not going to root for the A's until the team is sold or until they get back to taking this seriously. And I'm going to spend my money and my time watching someone else. I absolutely get it. I completely would understand if you were in that position. Uh, in just a minute, I want to get to uh, some interesting questions from the Discord about data collection and unionization, things like that in the minors, right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. And we're back. Thank you for making Locked On MLB Prospects your first listen every day. I want to make sure you check out Locked On Sports today. It's the biggest stories around the sports world in 20 minutes or less. Instant reactions, game recaps, Locked On's take of the day. Locked On Sports today is available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. They put out a great episode. Uh, it's like a year in review. You'll hear it on this feed on Friday in, in lieu of a normal episode from Locked On MLB Prospects. It'll be in this feed Clearly labeled, but it's Locked On Sports Today yearly recap. Uh, okay, so Cliff in the Discord had a question about data collection in the minor leagues. And the essence of the question, we were kind of talking about, it was a discussion we were having about TrackMan and Hawkeye and things like that, and who was responsible for collecting this data and disseminating this data, and, you know, two teams, and then what happens if a pitcher introduces a new pitch or something like that, and you know, who, who is making sure it's captured correctly? So the way that it works at the major league level is MLB has somebody, has people hired for every ballpark 
whose job it is to collect the track the, the trackman data and the Hawkeye data. And let's let's delineate real quickly between those two. So Trackman is a 3D Doppler radar system. And the idea here is that is to measure the location, the trajectory, and the spin rate of a hit baseball or a pitched baseball. And so the idea with this is for every single pitch, if you see something and we talk about, oh yeah, it had 12 inches of induced horizontal break. We're getting that from TrackMan. It uses radar to capture, it's something like 27 different things per pitch or hit. So when you see, yeah, that that ball had an exit velo of 105 and was hit at a 23 degree angle and went 445 feet, that's all the radar system of TrackMan. Hawkeye is cameras. That is 12 high-resolution, high-frame-rate video cameras. And the 12 feeds are synchronized and analyzed by a computer to detect and track ball and player movement. So when you see something and they talk about the route efficiency, how efficiently this outfielder, how quickly he jumped when the ball was hit. So that's the that's the reaction. We talk about reads, routes, and reactions. The read is how you see it off the bat. The route is, I'm sorry, the reaction is how quickly you get into your route. And the route is the is the path you take to the baseball. So the read is a lot of, is mental. The reaction is the physical reaction to your mental read. And then the route is how efficiently you ran to the ball. Measuring the, the reaction in the route, that is all done by Hawkeye, by the cameras. Uh, you can measure the ball and stuff with it as well. But TrackMan is a little bit better at the baseball stuff. And Hawkeye's better at the player stuff. So every minor league and major league ballpark has TrackMan installed. Every major league ballpark has Hawkeye. But to my knowledge, I don't think very many or any minor league ballparks have Hawkeye. So the data is collected. The TrackMan data is collected by MLB employees. Uh, at every at the major league level, they are hired. They are put uh, into every press box, and they have it. You sit at a desk with a computer, and every time a pitch comes in, you get all of the information on a chart. You get the 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 spin, the speed, and all of that, and you manually log what the pitch was. This was a fastball. This was a curveball. This was a slider. Uh, now. If you are struggling for some reason with what the pitch might be, uh, there it does give you, and this is my time talking to people who run TrackMan systems, it gives you, for each pitch thrown by a specific pitcher, it will give you a spin and velocity graph. So you can see this pitch, oh yeah, it was a little bit slower than usual, but this was a, this was a slider, or this was a changeup, uh, based on... Similar pitches that pitcher has thrown. In certain situations, you'll have where somebody uh, unveils a new pitch. Shohei Otani added a two-seamer late in the year last year. In that situation, uh, typically you're using the baseball knowledge that that person running TrackMan already has and their experience collecting different types of pitches. You may not have seen Shohei Otani's uh, two-seamer before, but you have seen other two-seamers. And you know that, okay, this fits the profile of a typical two-seamer. We'll mark it as a two-seamer and we'll make a note. Maybe we should go back and check later to make sure that, yes, he did add a two-seamer. And it's not just a weird pitch that we didn't pick up. So uh, 
Major League Baseball employees collect that data and disseminates that around uh, for for all of the Major League teams. Now, at the minors, uh, there it usually is a league employee who is in charge of that. It may be actually being run by, a, by an employee from one of the teams. It varies depending on level, setup, things like that. But TrackMan is available at just about every minor league ballpark. Most, you know, significant college programs have it. I've seen high schools that have TrackMan installed. Not everyone, but some of them. Uh, but a lot of that TrackMan data for the minors is not made publicly available to fans, to the prospect apparatus, people like me, journalists, things like that. That's a little more proprietary and a lot harder to get than it is at the major league level. Trust me, big frustration of mine. Uh, Goose in our Discord asks about an update on unionization. So last that last that we saw, last that I have been told, and I was just reading a, a, a paper about this, a legal paper about this the other day. Uh, they met, the two sides met in late October. They met again in mid-November. And those meetings have continued at, quote, regular intervals. So I'm not sure exactly how often, but this is uh, parts of the same bargaining unit that met to figure out the major league CBA. So some of the same negotiators on both MLB side and the player association side are the ones doing this negotiation. Everything that I have been told, the expectation is to still have a minor league collective bargaining agreement in place before the 2023 season. Additionally, they have indicated that they would be open to, in good faith, having a minor league season, or beginning a minor league season without a CBA, with the caveat that anything that is agreed to as far as compensation, things like that, any sort of pay increases, that would all be applied retroactively to the beginning of the season. Obviously, if you have a change in working conditions, you can't retroactively apply that. But if you raise the minimum salary, you can go back and pay them for back pay. So everything that we know as of now is that you would have uh, a CBA in place. And if you don't, they are prepared, both sides are prepared to begin the season without one as a gesture of good faith that they can get this negotiated in time. It's going to be a great week this week. I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas. Enjoyed your Festivus, whatever you may celebrate. A uh, lot of fun stuff coming up this week. Starting you know, next week, another holiday. And then the week after that, we start our farm system previews leading up to pitchers and catchers reporting in February. Until tomorrow's show, this has been Locked on MLB Prospects.